Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin. An important risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is head trauma and the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that can result. It is causing us to rethink everything from how we view high school tackle football considerations to whether headers should be allowed in high school soccer play. Michael Velasco, PhD, is co-director of the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center Clinical Corps. He completed his undergraduate studies at Providence College and earned his doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Kent State University. He is an associate professor of neurology at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Lasco has over 150 peer-reviewed scientific publications. And now, Dr. Michael Alasco. Hello, everyone. My name's Michael Alasco. I am an associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine, where I help to oversee a lot of our clinical research on Alzheimer's disease, uh, as well as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, a topic that I'll I'll be presenting and talking to you about today. Uh, I first want to just thank you to Dr. Lufkin and, and others uh, for organizing this incredible online virtual platform to, to discuss the latest advances on Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's disease risk, and uh, treatments and updates on prevention strategies. Uh, this is a wonderful forum, and I'm, I'm very grateful to be, to be a part of it. Uh, so I do not have any disclosures uh, other than uh, receiving support from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, so I just first want to talk about a quick outline on, on what we're going to be discussing today. Um, so first, I'm going to do a rather brief overview on traumatic brain injury uh, and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I'll go over what these terms mean and, and what their association uh, is this is a these are uh, this is a topic that's been studied uh, for a while now, um, but really the the goal and the focus of this talk is on chronic traumatic encephalopathy or uh, CTE uh, and risk factors for chronic traumatic encephalopathy and what this disease is and and what it looks like both in the brain and clinically the symptoms the signs and symptoms that it presents with. So when we think about traumatic brain injury, uh, the CDC defines it as a disruption in the normal function of the brain that can be caused by a bump, blow, or, or jolt of the head or pe penetrating head injury. Um, and here's a table uh, commonly used to, to uh, classify the different types of TBI. So there's you can have a mild, moderate, or severe TBI. Most often you see uh, the severity of TBI determined by the length of loss of consciousness. So people who hit their head uh, and get knocked out or lose consciousness, uh, it's considered mild if, it's, if the loss of consciousness is less than 30 minutes, uh, moderate if it's greater than 30 minutes or, or less, le less than 24 hours, and severe is anything greater than 24 hours. However, there's also these other different types of criteria here to, to define uh, the different head injuries. So. Uh, <clears throat> alterations in consciousness, duration of loss of memory following the injury, known as post-traumatic amnesia. Um, the longer the longer the time you have memory gap uh, for things that happened after the injury, the more severe it tends to be. There's also the common Glasgow Como scale. Como scale. Um, and these are all just different ways 
to classify the severity of TBI. Now, what are the, the signs and symptoms of TBI? Um, if we think about TBI, uh, there's, there's actually uh, four types of signs and symptoms that usually happen after this injury. So you have the somatic or these physical um, symptoms. These things include things like loss of consciousness, uh, being overly sensitive to light or sound, uh, having headaches, nausea, trouble, uh, balance, balance problems, being steady on your feet. There's also the sleep problems. Um, people often have a hard time uh, falling asleep, staying asleep, uh, and, and, uh, and often resulting in some insomnia for some time. There's the thinking and memory problems or cognitive difficulties. Uh, these in th include things like attentional difficulties, uh, visual problems, um, trouble remembering information or memory uh, disturbances. And then there's also mood symptoms that often accompany a TBI. These include things like depression, uh, being irritable, agitated, or having just overall mood swings. So these are the four domains uh, of signs and symptoms that you typically see following a TBI. And again, these signs and symptoms, they can become, uh, they can last longer and become more severe as the injury severity of the TBI increases. So here's a nice figure uh, adapted from a, um, from a previously published study um, that shows the recovery uh, of the different CV, uh, severity of TBIs. So if you look on the y-axis here, or on the, um, on the vertical axis, you can see that a person's baseline, so their normal function, is at the top here. Uh, and, then, and then here it, it is illustrating when the traumatic brain injury occurs at, at the time of their normal function. Now, someone who has a mild traumatic brain injury, they experience those symptoms that I just discussed, and, and typically someone with a mild traumatic brain injury will recover and return to the normal function within seven days to two weeks, right? Um, and, and usually most, uh, if not all, will, will, re will recover uh, by fully by one month, although there is a small subgroup of people who will go on to have symptoms that persist for, for a year or so or longer. Um, then there's also the moderate and severe TBI. You can see the moderate TBI takes much longer for them to recover. And in fact, some people might not ever uh, return back to their baseline or to the normal function. Then you have a severe TBI. And similarly, it takes longer to recover from this injury. And again, uh, most people and a lot of people do not ever kind of get back to their normal function, though, though certainly there are people who can, uh, but most, most do not. So you can see this is a great figure showing the relatively acute recovery process of the different TBIs. And importantly, I, I just want to note again or emphasize that people with mild TBI, almost all uh, will recover within, within two weeks to a month uh, with a small subset who have prolonged symptoms. But again, even those people will recover within a year or, or so. Now, switching gears here, uh, let's talk about Alzheimer's disease. So traumatic brain injury, um, mild through severe, has historically been researched and viewed as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Um, so before I talk about that relationship a little bit more, I want to just uh, briefly touch on what uh, the biology of Alzheimer's disease. So what is Alzheimer's disease? So here 
is a picture of a neuron and and you can see this is this the, over here the cell body this is an axon or the white matter where information travels across uh, and the cardinal or the the classic pathology of of Alzheimer's disease is the accumulation of what of a protein called beta amyloid, and it and it these 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 are normal proteins in our in our brain that in Alzheimer's disease do not get cleared and they clump together in plaques outside of the cell. And it's often thought the most common hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease is that this accumulation leads to uh, aggregation and misfolding of a protein called bus of tau. Uh, resulting in phosphorylated tau that accumulates within the cell. And as this accumulates, it, it strangles the cell and, and, and leads to cell death, eventually leading to, to uh, problems with thinking, memory, and, and dementia. So the presence of beta amyloid and phosphorylated tau are the, are the two cardinals pathology of Alzheimer's disease. Now, in 2005, there was an Institute of Medicine um, issued a report, and what this report was, was it was an exhaustive literature review by a panel of experts, and they rated the evidence on the long-term consequences of traumatic brain injury. So, and in total, they rated 10 studies on the relationship between traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease, and they concluded that there was sufficient evidence that a moderate or severe TBI um, is associated with Alzheimer's disease. There seemed to be some suggestive evidence that uh, when you had a mild TBI with loss of consciousness, so remember you can have a mild TBI uh, and it can be without loss of consciousness, um, but only those with loss of consciousness is seemed to be a suggestive evidence of a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. But there was inadequate evidence that a mild TBI without loss of consciousness could confer risk for Alzheimer's disease. So. So that was, that was some time ago now, um, but since that time, there has been uh, numerous reports, uh, large studies, large epidemiology, large uh, cohort studies, uh, continuing to show that TBI uh, is a risk factor for, for Alzheimer's disease, uh, Alzheimer's disease dementia in particular. However, in, in this uh, relatively recent article, uh, this was this was published in JAMA Neurology. This was over 7,000 autopsy participants. So these were all deceased participants uh, from these large kind of uh, community-based studies. And what they found in this, again, these, this was an autopsy sample where they could actually neuropathologically define Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. They found no association between TBI uh, with dementia or Alzheimer's disease neuropathologic changes. But they did find it was associated with some other neurodegenerative diseases um, so, or in neurological disorders like Lewy body disease, Parkinsonisms, and Parkinson's disease. So what's different about this study compared to some of the other studies I was talking about before is that this actually had neuropathologic evidence of that beta amyloid and that tau protein I was talking about in Alzheimer's disease. Many of the other studies uh, showing an association between TBI and Alzheimer's disease, it was the clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease using um, kind of medical records or, or similar methods to, to identify who had clinical Alzheimer's disease. And here's a study that, that we published. Um, it's actually been accepted and, it, and is published. 
um, that that used a really large sample from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. And and I'm not I'm not going to go into it too much detail because the take home message here is that traumatic brain injury did not correlate with Alzheimer's disease neuropathologic changes in this about in these thousands of of, 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 of brain donors who came to autopsy. So very similar to the last study I showed you. Again, what's novel about this study was that it was a large sample that had neuropathologic evidence of Alzheimer's disease. So why, so what, how do we make sense of this? So there's this historical account and research showing a relationship between TBI and Alzheimer's disease. Then these more recent studies, these more recent neuropathology autopsy samples do not actually find a link between TBI and these and these proteins of, of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. So I think what we can conclude is that, yes, TBI is, is a risk factor for dementia. And when I say dementia, what I mean is uh, memory or thinking impairments that become so severe they interfere with someone's ability to function. Right? So that's regardless of it of Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or whatever is causing it. Dementia is a clinical syndrome, and we do think TBI is associated with risk for dementia, particularly moderate to severe, and including evidence for mild TBI. That being said, perhaps TBI uh, is not specifically associated with Alzheimer's disease, or maybe different types of TBIs cause different types of neurodegenerative diseases uh, and related decline. Um, but importantly, one one uh, or there's two important factors that the literature has historically uh, neglected up until recently, and that's consideration for both repetitive head impacts and subconcussive blows. Right. So the literature so far has focused on mild, moderate, severe TBI, often focusing on does one or two or three uh, result in, in in risk for later life outcomes, but the literature has very rarely looked at repetitive head impacts or subconcussive blows. So what is a subconcussive blow? So that is just like a TBI, it's an impact to the brain that it has an effect on neuro, neuronal functioning, but unlike a TBI, there's no immediate symptoms. So the force applied to the brain is not adequate enough to cause symptoms, but it is adequate enough to, to cause injury to the neurons or the brain. So you often see these subconcussive blows in things like contact sports. So American football, uh, you can see on the background of this slide, it's when when two two people are bumping heads every down, every practice, every play, uh, and those heads, you know, maybe they're not getting symptoms every time, but perhaps there is injury going on to the neurons. A lot of these, um, of, of particularly American football players, can have you know thousand plus of these head head impacts per season. And so if you take someone's career, uh, 10, 15, 20-year career over their, over their lifetime, that's a lot of head impacts. So, so, so that's subconcussive blows. Now repetitive head impacts. It's kind of just like, like it sounds. So repetitive head impacts, again, it's any type of force that's applied to the head, and that head causes some type of injury to the brain. Right, and then and then and that injury to the brain that can result in recurrent or repetitive concussions or t mild TBIs and these symptoms, or uh, recurrent or repetitive subconcussive injuries, and those are uh, again those are injuries to the brain that 
don't cause any symptoms. So you think of repetitive head impacts as an environmental exposure of, of a force applied to the head, and that uh, exposure or force causes injury to the brain to cause recurrent either concussions or mild TBI or subconcussive injuries. So you imagine, think about American football, a lot of these guys have repetitive concussions, but perhaps, but even more prominently, or they have uh, repetitive subconcussive injuries. So we recently set out to study uh, the long-term effects of repetitive head impacts and TBI. So we we also looked at not only subconcussive and repetitive subconcussive injuries, but also traumatic brain injury, and we looked at its long-term effects on depression symptoms and, and cog cognitive function. This was published in 2020 in neurology by our team. This study leveraged the, uh, the Brain Health Registry. So this is an amazing um, resource out of, out of uh, the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, the PI is Dr. Weiner. Um, this is an online registry um, that anybody across the country can sign up for. Uh, at the time of this study, there was about 60,000. That number has since grown significantly. Um, but but it, it, it's done all online, all internet-based, and it, people register, they sign up, they complete a bunch of questions, uh, um, um, you know, about their medical history, about who they are. They also complete computerized cognitive tests. Uh, they also complete self-report measures of mood uh, and a whole host of every of, of questionnaires, sleep, um, medications, etc. cetera. Uh, they complete this. Um, and then, so they join and they complete this, you know, at one, as soon as they join. And then also there's a regular follow-up period that they continue to, to, to uh, complete this. And the, the purpose of this registry is really to facilitate um, people, uh, to facilitate recruitment to clinical trials and other kind of observational studies as well. So at the time of the study, like I said, there was about 60,000. We ended up with a final sample size of approximately 13,000. And again, this, this was after taking into account um, uh, people who had complete cognitive data on the, the computerized cognitive tests, complete data on, on some of the mood tests. Uh, and we also restricted to people who were 40 or older. So this registry, you can be 18 or older to join. We're interested in the long-term effects. So we only want people who are 40 or older. We, we looked at TBI uh, through the Ohio State University Traumatic Brain Injury Questionnaire, and that was only added to, to the BHR in 2015. So the Ohio State University Traumatic Brain Injury Questionnaire, it asks whether or not people had uh, their history of, of having a traumatic brain injury uh, with or without loss of consciousness. And then there's also a single question that says, have you ever been exposed to repetitive head impacts? from things like contact sports, military service, uh, domestic violence, and it's a yes or no question, as well as military service, and it's a yes or no question. So here, through this questionnaire, we had history of traumatic brain injury, whether or not they lost consciousness from that traumatic brain injury, as well as if they had a history of repetitive head injury. The cognitive test we used was the COG State Brief Battery uh, and the Lumos Labs Neurocognitive Performance Test. And then depression symptoms were measured through the geriatric depression scale. And so of this, of this um, final sample here of 13,000, had, we had um, about one, two, about um, six groups. So we had a group who had no history of repetitive head impacts or traumatic brain injury. 
We had a group who had repetitive head impact, but no TBI, and then so on, different permutations of this. And what we found was quite interesting. So if you look at the top here, this is the geriatric depression scale. So this is the uh, scale of, of reported symptoms. And in the left figure here, you see that those who had a history of repetitive head impact had more, were more likely to report having more symptoms of depression later in life. And we found a similar finding for both TBI with and without loss of consciousness. And then interestingly, uh, if you look at the right figure here, at the different group uh, groupings that I just reviewed, as you had a repetitive head impact and that you had more severe TBI, your symptoms of depression got more severe. So the group that had repetitive head impacts and TBI with loss of consciousness had the most severe symptoms of depression. And we found a similar but not as strong as effect for the cognitive state brief batter one back uh, uh, test uh, of speed which is kind of reaction time, working memory. And again, we, we see that those who had had a history of repetitive head impacts and TBI with and without loss of consciousness were more likely to have a slower reaction time or slower speed of performance on this test. And you found a similar kind of dose response trend uh, on the right figure here as you did with the symptoms of depression. So this was one is one of the largest studies to study both repetitive head impacts and traumatic brain injury on cognition and mood. And it's similar to other studies in the literature that are finding uh, smaller size studies that are finding, finding similar effects in living uh, in living individuals. Now the question that we where I devote a lot of my time to in my lab is do these repetitive head impacts lead to a neurodegenerative disease? So do these Repetitive concussions and subconcussion injuries from things like contact sports cause accumulation of neurodegenerative disease proteins in the brain. And in particularly, do these result in something called chronic traumatic cephalopathy or CTE? So CTE, it's, it's similar to Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disease, um, but distinct. And I'll, I'll go over the distinction soon. And it can currently only be diagnosed through neuropathological examination. So I work very closely with, uh, and very fortunate to work closely with Dr. Ann McKee, who has examined more brains of CTE than any other uh, neuropathologist. We have the largest CTE brain bank in the world. Uh, I think at the time of this, this recording, um, there's something like over 900 brains examined in our, in our brain bank. So while we're just starting to learn a lot about CT now, uh, particularly in the past five, 10 years, necessarily entirely new. Um, and in fact, you can think about CT dating back to 1928 uh, in this, in this seminal paper, uh, punch drunk paper, uh, where, where uh, this, it was this clinical syndrome of, of mood, behavior, motor, uh, signs and symptoms in a group of, of boxers that were described by Harrison Martland, a forensic pathologist. But then even in 1949, the term chronic traumatic encephalopathy was actually used, and again in reference to a group of boxers or fighters who had uh, this, these clinical signs and symptoms of, of behavior, mood, uh, motor disturbances. Then in um, the 1970s, a, a paper by Corcellus uh, described this, this, um, the neuropathological features uh, in 15 retired boxers. And again, what was described was this abnormal accumulation of, 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 of tau in the brain. 
something that it was an accumulation of tau that didn't look like any other other neurodegenerative disease. And then even in the 1990s, we continued to we continue to get reports, neuropathological reports of accumulation of this tau in people with this history, repetitive head impacts, mostly boxers, uh, where they're seeing this this tau patterns that very different and unlike other other neurodegenerative diseases. And then it was not until 2005 when when Mike Webster um, passed and donated his brain uh, to to Dr. Bennett Umalu, who who then at the time examined the brain. And the reason that led to the examination was was because he was having a lot of symptoms during life at at a very young age, at 52 years old. Um, so so they wanted to do a, an autopsy examination to see what might be going on. And, and, and lo and behold, they, they found this, again, accumulation of, of tau uh, in a brain that, that seemed to be uh, very unique and different from anything else. And this is where, where, they, they, um, where chronic traumatic encephalopathy was reported in the first National Football League player. And this is when, when kind of the science and, and the attention around this disease really began to explode and, and move forward at a rapid pace since then. So like I said, it's really been Dr. McKee and the Brain Bank at the, at the Boston VA, Boston University and Concussion Legacy Foundation Brain Bank that's been leading the charge on, on defining CTE and what it is neuropathologically. Um, this is a great picture of the group. Um, and and led by Dr. McKee, they proposed and developed the, the uh, neuropathological diagnostic criteria for, for CTE. Um, so this was published in 2016. This was a this was a um, consensus meeting of a group of neuropathologists who who looked at um, various various neurodegenerative diseases, uh, and they all agree that in CTE, uh, what I'm showing you here on the screen is the pathognomonic lesion, meaning that this is a lesion that's unique to CTE and not found in other neurodegenerative diseases. And what's unique about it is, um, so this, the brown, the brown you see everywhere is phosphorylated tau, what I described to you at the beginning of this presentation. And while this tau protein is found in other neurodegenerative diseases, it's unique in CTE because it tends to accumulate around small blood vessels, as you see here. Uh, and it also tends to accumulate at the depths of the sulci. So, and it's in, and it, and it has to be in neurons. So, the pathognomic lesion of CTE is the deposition of phosphorylated tau around small blood vessels, often at the depths of the soul side. Dr. McKee uh, also developed a staging scheme called the McKee staging scheme for CTE. Uh, and the purpose of this was to stage uh, the progression of, of phosphorylated tau in CTE. And so you can see the, there's four stages, stage one being the least severe, stage four being the most severe. So stage one CTE, you really get these isolated foci of, of patchy uh, lesions of phosphorylated tau, the depths of sulci around the small blood vessels. Uh, stage, and they often present most, most um, initially in the frontal cortex. Uh, by stage two, these, these lesions progress to the adjacent cortices, parietal lobe, um, there's usually three or more of these lesions throughout the brain. They tend to be older, um, and, and, um, and they also have problems with thinking and memory. Um, stage one, um, you also get, um, problems with thinking and memory, although 
it's really unclear if these isolated tau lesions are responsible for it, is it, or is this really a marker for more widespread dysfunction, you know, functional disconnectivity throughout the brain that might be causing some of this uh, dementia. And stage three, you're starting to get into uh, more severe disease. So this is, this is the stage where it starts to spread into the medial temporal lobe, and it starts to kind of progress throughout the brain. Uh, here, they tend to be a little bit older, and, and the, the, the number of people who have dementia at this stage is, is quite significant. And then stage four CTE, you really have widespread tau throughout the brain. You're again older, and, and more people are likely to have dementia. So as mentioned before, this is a disease that's different from a Alzheimer's disease, particularly in how it presents. Um, so as I was just discussing in the last slide, CTE, you often get the tau beginning in the frontal areas of the brain, whereas in Alzheimer's disease, it's often starting, you know, the locus ceruleus or, or in the entorhinal cortex um, in, in the early stages and then progressing um, and then progressing up through the cortex, frontal cortex. Uh, parietal temporal cortex uh, throughout the uh, in the later stages. Uh, in contrast to Alzheimer's disease, CT begins in the cortex frontal lobe, and then you don't hit the medial temporal lobe and torrinal cortex hippocampus until later uh, in the disease in stage three. Um, so it's a very unique uh, pattern from Alzheimer's disease, and not only is the pattern and something I'm not presenting here, but the type of tau is also different. There's now um, studies out there that shows the type of tau or the tau species in CTE is different from Alzheimer's disease, is different from um, FTL, frontotemporal lobar degenerations as well. So what are the risk factors for CTE? So why do some people get CTE and others, and others do not? So I can tell you that in our brain bank and in, and in others too, that um, all neuropathologically confirmed cases have had a history of repetitive head impacts. There have been reports now that um, there's been findings of CTE in, in people who did not have repetitive head impacts or, or, or maybe in a single TBI. Um, and I will say that, that if you read those studies, some of those studies, I think there's issues with both uh, misclassification of diagnosing CTE, but then there's also issues with how repetitive head impacts were assessed uh, or more importantly, were not assessed um, uh, in detail. Um, so what we think is that repetitive head impacts exposure is necessary, but not sufficient, meaning that you need to have repetitive head impacts to, to get CT. Um, however, there's millions of people and, and ton, many people who, who have a history of repetitive head impacts, but do not go on to develop CT or other long-term problems and are, are doing quite, are doing just fine. So there's other risk factors at play. So one study that, that um, I think is an incredibly important study to the field, uh, it was back in 2015, but it was led by uh, Dr. Beniak at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and they went into their, to their neurodegenerative disease brain bank, and they wanted to determine the presence of CT uh, in, in their, in their, uh, for neurodegenerative disorders among individual, individuals with and without a history of contact sport play. So what's really important about this, this paper is that their brain bank isn't devoted to the study of repetitive head impacts or to the study of CTE. So it's not, it's not biased in that way. Um, so what they did was that they had available medical records for about 1,700 men, and they reviewed evidence uh, that they reviewed for evidence of a history of TBI or participation in contact sports. Um, they processed the brain tissue 
in people with a documented history of sports and a group of age and disease matched men and women without exposure. They looked at the brain tissue for CTE. And they found that 21 of 66 former contact sports athletes had uh, the tau pathology that's consistent with a CTE diagnosis, meaning that they had that lesion of tau around small blood vessels, often at the depths of the sold side. They did not find CTE in, in any of the 198 individuals without exposure to contact sport in uh, sport play. Importantly, 33 who had a single TBI from falls or, or motor vehicle accidents, domestic violence, they also did not have a CTE. Um, so that, again, this kind of reaffirms that CTE pathology is, is only in people with contact sports and that it reaffirms that exposure to repetitive head impacts from things like contact sports is a great is a risk factor for CTE. Now, more recently, uh, a really close colleague of mine, Dr. Mez, he published a paper in 2009, uh, I think 20 actually, so I apologize, um, in Annals of Neurology that I was fortunate to be a part of, that sought to directly test the relationship between years of exposure to repetitive head impacts and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now, the years of exposure, repetitive head impacts, was defined by the duration of American football play. Um, so that was, that was used as a proxy. And so who, who this sample was, was a, a group of brain dovers from uh, the Boston University, the ABUCLF brain bank. And I'm going to talk about that brain bank in a little bit, but that, the purpose of that brain bank is to study the long-term consequences of repetitive head impacts, including CTE. And to be eligible to get into the brain bank, you have to have a history of repetitive head impacts. Most of the brain bank is made up of American football players. So here, this was a group of brain donors who played American football. And we had a total of 266. 145 had severe CTE, um, so stages 3 and, and 4. Uh, 78 had mild CTE, so stages 1, 2. And then 43 had, had no CTE. Uh, you can see here that um, 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 a lot of these played, a lot of these individuals played uh, elite football, so um, college or, or above professional football. Um, you know, on average, uh, the the the, um, um, the um, mean duration of a football play was about 16 years for severe, about 12 years for mild CT. Now, the no CT group. Um, played, you know, could have also played football, um, but they obviously did not have CT. You know, the, they're considered, quote, the control group, and the control here is defined by the outcome, so not having CT. And again, these are all men. What they found was quite striking. Um, so if you look here, the first uh, association tested was does, uh, what is the relationship between years of play and risk of having CT? And they found that the odds of CTE increased by 30% for each additional year of American football played. And then similarly, they looked at among those with CTE, does duration of play affect uh, the severity of CTE developed? And it does, and that among those with CTE, odds of developing severe CTE increased by 14% for each additional year played. So we now have seen in the literature both an association between repetitive head impacts defined by things like years of American, of American football play. And this study quantified the actual strength of that relationship. So we've now consistently seen this relationship as repetitive head impacts being uh, as 
uh, a primary risk factor for CT, but again, um, there are likely other factors at play, things like genetics and so on that I'll, I'll go into. So now what about the clinical presentation of CT? So, so far I've told you what it looks like in the brain. I told you what we think is the primary risk factor for this disease, but what, how does this affect people? And this is something that we've been studying uh, through what we call the UNITE study, and I'm describing this process a little bit before, um, but the UNITE study is, is, um, is um, this really large operation, and it's the brain bank that has the over 900 brains uh, of, of CT tissue. And there's two arms to the study. So a brain is donated and it goes through two parallel processes. So first, the brain goes through the neuropathology side and, and it gets, it gets um, you know, uh, it gets com a comprehensive examination for all types of neurodegenerative diseases, including CTE. And then as that's happening, the family members or the informants uh, of the brain donor are also going through this rigorous um, clinical uh, interview as well. And so they, they complete online questionnaires, they complete telephone phone calls with clinicians and research assistants. And the purpose of these questionnaires and, and um, interviews over the phone is to gather uh, what the, the, the clinical symptoms, signs and symptoms of the brain donor before they died and throughout their life. So we determine the type of symptoms they had, uh, the course of the symptoms, the severity of the symptoms, uh, and we use these symptoms all to come up to see kind of what kind of syndrome they have. Importantly, both the clinicians are the clinicians are blind to the pathology during this process, and the neuropathologists are blinded to any clinical information as well. So through these methods, um, we we've been able to get an idea uh, of what of what the signs and symptoms of CT are, are, are starting to look like. This was published way back in 2013. Um, but back then we, we, we there was a this was among a small group of of um, of, of, of brain donors who had CTE and no other neurodegenerative disease. And there was two presentations that were described that are that are being shown here. So you had one presentation of, of individuals who developed these memory and thinking problems at around a mean age of 60, uh, and then they continued to have a progressive decline after that. Then you had another group of individuals who actually began to start with symptoms of mood and behavior, so things like depression, things like irritability, aggressive behaviors, impulsivity. Um, and they started to develop that at a relatively younger age, around mean age of, of between 30 and 40, and then a subsequent uh, decline. You know, an issue here, and really an issue that's been, been con that we're continuing to try to figure out is these cognitive symptoms. Uh, how are they different from Alzheimer's disease? How are they different from frontotemporal lobar degeneration? There's a lot of overlap in symptoms. More importantly and, um, is, is the behavior mood symptoms. This is something that's been just, that's, um, seems to be somewhat um, unique in CT in, the, in terms of the type of symptoms and the age they start. Um, so what are these behavior mood symptoms? Are they related to that tau protein uh, that I've been describing in CTE? Or are they from other pathologies of repetitive head impacts, maybe white matter injury? Or are they um, individuals who are just predisposed to psychiatric illness? So are they just it, these idiopathic psychiatric illness, perhaps unrelated to CTE or unrelated to repetitive head impacts? Those, those are questions we're still trying to figure out. Um, 
in a, in a, in a subsequent study, in, uh, fast forwarding about four years later in 2017, this was published in JAMA. Uh, this was a case series of, of, of American football players who had CTE from the, from the brain bank. Um, here is showing you clinical features reported in 111 American football players who had CTE. And here you can see, this is just describing the type of cognitive symptoms in the course. Um, you can see that there's, this is broken down by mild CTE, severe CTE, then, then everybody. Uh, almost everybody had a progressive course, particularly the severe CTE. Um, difficulties with executive function, memory, attention, those were some of the more common symptoms uh, associated with CTE. And then um, a, lot of people, a lot of individuals who had severe CTE tend to have, have dementia. Also in that same sample, there was a, a description of the behavioral mood symptoms. And again, what you see here is impulsivity being, being re relatively uh, very common in this sample of, 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 of uh, American football players with CTE, um, as well as depression symptoms um, and, and some other, um, you know, explosivity was also co common, apathy, anxiety. Uh, there was some social inappropriateness. Importantly, we're not, unlike FTD or the behavioral variant FTD, we don't see that um, kind of silly social disinhibition or, or um, inappropriateness, but it's more kind of um, uh, just trouble with uh, impulse control uh, difficulties, kind of, um, and, and as opposed to those silly behaviors that you might see in some of other neurodegenerative diseases. So this was just so traumatic. So this was just published in 2021. So this is a revised uh, traumatic encephalopathy syndrome research diagnostic criteria. So in 2014, um, there was an initial set of TES criteria uh, proposed and published, and the purpose of that criteria was to uh, define the clinical syndrome of CTE. So TES is the clinical disorder of CTE. And it was proposed originally in 2014, uh, and then just um, you know the last couple of months, a revised version of this uh, was was published. These criteria are meant for research only; they're not meant to be used in the clinic because they're not yet ready uh, to be in the clinic. Uh, and it's really again just uh, that's uh, that's kind of a big uh, yellow font, uh, at least <laughs> in my mind. Is this is for research purposes only? Um, but what it describes is some of these symptoms. So really, these new criteria, what they emphasize, uh, in addition to having sufficient exposure to repetitive head impacts, the core clinical features are problems with ex episodic memory, executive function, and then this new term, uh, neurobehavioral dysregulation. So these, this refers to emotional dysregulation, impulsivity, explosiveness, as well as uh, trouble with activities of daily living. And then there's also supportive features. Um, again, they have to have uh, uh, two or more of these uh, motor signs, anxiety, apathy, depression, paranoia. So this, this was a huge uh, advancement in the field and hopefully it will, will facilitate the research to get us closer to the point where we can, can start to get criteria in the clinic. But again, a lot the, 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 one of the reasons why it can't be in the clinic yet is because these criteria so far have been proven to be sensitive but not specific. So what is this, What I want to give you a good idea of, of what this looks like both in, in a person 
uh, as well as what our research process looks like when some when a brain is donated. So I'm going to give you some case examples next. So this is this is Tom McHale. He died at age 45, and again these these are um, individuals who have have given our permission to present uh, uh, on them because of um, or their families have given permission to present on them to educate. Um, but this Tom McHale is one of the first brain donors actually of the brain bank. And he was a nine year NFL veteran lineman. He played for the Tampa Bay. Um, and what's fascinating about him was that the, this was really when we started to get into sub concussive because he came in and there was no uh, reported or known concussions. And so at the time we thought um, um, we weren't sure if he was going to have CT because we didn't really, we weren't focusing on the sub concussive blows. Um, so he was a sex, sex, uh, Cornell University graduate, successful entrepreneur uh, after the NFL. He, had a he was a husband. He was a father of three boys. He was just a wonderful person. He had, he had a life. He had a really long struggle, though, with, with drug use uh, and, and addiction. Um, and so he, came, he donated his brain to the brain bank. And his brain was examined. And, and lo and behold, he had the classic lesion of CTE. And again, this is when we um, this this is when we first started to kind of put the pieces together of of, of subconcussive blows. And again, when I say we, this is a little bit before my time, but this is really when um, this was a, someone who had no history of concussion but had CTE. So here's another great example. Um, this is um, this was an 82 year old former NFL wide receiver. So he played 16 years of football, started playing at age 14, nine years in the NFL. Uh, he was a wide receiver, cornerback, uh, and a kick returner. So he estimated having 500 concussions, 10 with brief loss of consciousness, no hospitalization. So in his mid-60s, he was retired as a construction sales manager, and he began to have trouble with memory, trouble with executive dysfunction, navigational difficulty. Uh, but he continued to function at a relatively high level, publishing novels, his symptoms progressed in his 70s, started to have trouble functioning, uh, trouble with activities of daily living. Uh, 72, 74, he had a, a workup with a behavioral neurologist, um, neuropsychologist, and psychiatrist. Um, and the clinical evaluation showed global impairment on neuropsychological testing, impairment in all domains. Uh, he had a head CT that showed a cavum septum pellucidum, and that's what that is, is... Um, kind of hard to see on this on here and B but it's a separation of the tissue that separates the um, uh, the ventricles um, we think that that's associated with repetitive head impacts uh, it's you know the, a lot of the people in the normal population can have them but we're seeing them more in people with this repetitive head injury uh, he also had atrophy shrinkage of the brain with clear hippocampal atrophy and he was diagnosed with with Alzheimer's disease during life his symptoms progressed he began to develop Parkinsonism, and at age 84, he was, he was severely demented. So he donated his brain. Um, we did the full clinical workup with the family, and we all, like, like um, he presented, thought he had Alzheimer's disease. Uh, his clinical course was very consistent uh, with what you might see in Alzheimer's disease. Now, we thought CT might be possible given his years uh, a repetitive head injury, but really his presentation painted a picture of Alzheimer's disease. Neuropathologically, though, he had absolutely no Alzheimer's disease in the brain, and he had the most severe CTE you could have. 
Um, there was not the neuritic or the sparse neuritic amyloid plaques. Again, that's the pathology you need to have uh, for Alzheimer's disease, and that was sparse, so it was, it was not it was not there. Uh, so again, this, this the the the, the um, the lesson from this case is how hard it can be to, to diagnose CT in life because of the overlap symptoms uh, with Alzheimer's disease. But importantly, a lot of these individuals uh, with Alzheimer's disease diagnosis in life could very well have, have CTE. This is another case published in JAMA Neurology. This is a 25-year-old. He played 16 years of football starting at age 6, 3 years of Division One. He was a linebacker. Uh, he had more than 10 concussions without hospitalizations. So in his freshman year of college, he had a concussion, and then he had this classic post-concussive, um, uh, persistent post-concussive syndrome presentation, headaches, neck pain, blurry vision, anxiety, trouble in memory, concentration. He continued to play despite some of these symptoms staying there, and then his junior year, he stopped playing altogether due to the symptoms. He left college 12 credits short, graduating with a 1.9 GPA. His symptoms continued. He began to develop some suicidal ideation. He had trouble maintaining a job, began to use marijuana daily. Uh, there was some physical and verbal aggression. Neuropsychological testing uh, showed deficits in memory and, and executive function. He ended up having an incidental cardiac death. Uh, he came to the brain bank and, again, very classic for this post persistent post-concussive syndrome. Uh, and that's what we all thought. And and we thought, given, you know, he's young as well, so depression might be contributing, but also maybe CT, um, although that wasn't high on the differential because of his age and because it painted a picture of post-concussive syndrome. He ended up having CTE, again, stage two or three uh, out of four, uh, and no other pathology, just CTE. Um, now, he could have very well had post-concussive syndrome, but how much of that was coming from post-concussive syndrome or CTE? Uh, really unclear, uh, but the important part of this case is that we're finding this disease in, 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 in young individuals. So related to that point, in actively investigating what are the causes of these symptoms. We published, I published this in 2020, specifically looking at the Tiao of CTE, and in fact, we did see, um, using um, the key staging scheme, we saw that the Tiao of CTE was strongly associated with a history of dementia. Uh, for every one level increase in the stage of CT, there's a 1.64 increase odds for, for dementia. And if you look at this um, pie chart here, so these are among people with um, uh, CTE. So the, each color, um, you know, going um, clockwise, each color is um, uh, stage one, two, three, and four. And you can see that by, by each stage, uh, the, the, the amount of people who have dementia increases. Um, and then here on this on the right here is the um, is, is an illustration of, of the pathology in people with and without um, um, dementia. So here on the left is someone who had mild CTE and and you can see that both the frontal cortex and the hippocampus um, is not is not that full of tau and, and this person does not have to dementia compared to someone who has severe CT and dementia. Now, a really important point is that we're also seeing that not all symptoms are related to the tau of pathology, and this is incredibly consistent with, in, with Alzheimer's disease. We now have this really growing appreciation that there's, that dementia and other clinical signs and symptoms are a cause of mixed pathologies, and 
Uh, Dr. Mez just published this paper in 336 brain donors, 244 with CTE. And the strongest predictor of CT pathology was cognitive symptoms, but we didn't find an association for the behavior, mood, or motor symptoms. So perhaps there's other types of pathologies uh, causing these uh, mood or behavior symptoms. Or, you know, there also could be um, issues with measurement here. Again, these are based on informant retrospective reports. But again, it's a it's really important take-home message that there's likely other pathologies at play causing symptoms. And I really like to use this as a framework to how we're thinking about CTE. So we see that repetitive head impacts is causing CTE neuropathology, which is linked to symptoms. But there's also this other pathway below here where that a lot of our work from our group has shown that other neuropathologies cause clinical symptoms as well. And importantly, repetitive head impacts is not uh, sufficient to cause CTE. And we also need to think about demographics, genetics, lifestyle, uh, medical, psychosocial factors as well. And that's something I've been focusing on is what is the role of these other pathologies. In particular, I'm interested in, in uh, vascular disease or cerebrovascular disease. And, and we published this paper in JAMA Neurology back in 2019 to look at what is the contribution of white matter rarefaction or axonal loss to myelination and cerebrovascular disease, things like arteriosclerosis, small vessel disease, uh, with dementia in deceased former American football players. And we tested this, we tested, um, we tested this large model. And first we sought off to test what is the relationship between years of American football play, tau pathology in the frontal cortex, and dementia. And this is something that's been uh, looked at before, but we really put the pieces together here. And what we found is that um, the effect of years of American football was a completely mediated by, by, on dementia, was completely mediated by tau. Interestingly, though, we also showed that years of American football play was associated with more severe white matter loss, which also predicted dementia. And we also found that small vessel disease or arteriosclerosis, which is commonly a, a result of things like hypertension, diabetes, also contributed to dementia but not associated with years of American football play and instead associated with hypertension. And what's even um, more important about the study is that the effect sizes for the, uh, for the effects of these other pathologies on dementia was equivalent to or equal to the tau pathology. So again, this paper really underscores the point that dementia CT is likely a result of pathology from both repetitive head impacts and other types of pathologies not associated with repetitive head impacts. So what is the next step in this field? We're, we're continuing to try to define the clinical presentation, continue to identify risk factors, to continuing to identify the pathologies that cause the symptoms. But we need to really be able to diagnose this disease during life in order to start to think about how to treat and prevent this disease. And right now, we can only diagnose it after death. And that's a really big problem because there's millions of people who play these contact sports each year and are exposed to repetitive head impacts. So one thing we're really focusing on is biomarkers. So similar to Alzheimer's disease, biomarkers plus a clinical evaluation will help us get an accurate diagnosis during life. When I say biomarkers, I mean tools that we can administer in living people to detect the tau of CTE, like these, the biological underpinnings of CTE. And that's something uh, really that uh, an effort that I'm, uh, that I'm leading and trying to focus on. In particular, I'm looking at tau 
uh, PET imaging, PET imaging or positron emission tomography, um, closely collaborating with a colleague from University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Gilbert Benavici, a world-leading expert in PET imaging. And we're testing out this um, you know, second-generation tau tracer called Merck or MK6240 to see if that can, um, can bind to the tau that we see in CTE uh, in living people. Uh, Dr. Stern, a close collaborator of mine at BU, uh, recently looked at flortausapir um, in, and published his findings in New England Journal of Medicine that I was fortunate to be a part of and found some uh, really interesting findings and uh, for flortausapir, although uh, in that paper and other papers on this tracer, it looks like it might be able to detect CT late in the disease stages, uh, per, but perhaps not early, and, 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 um, and also the co correlations that are being found for flortausapir and CT and its ability to detect to that tau uh, is not overly overwhelmingly strong. So we're, we're looking at other types of tau tracers. We're also looking at routine structural magnetic resonance imaging. So as part of every any and every dementia evaluation, um, you should get an MRI and you look for patterns of shrinkage in the brain. Um, and and this is uh, this is something we've been I've been looking at closely with a colleague, Dr. Mez, uh, where we're working on a paper. Uh, that's looking at the brain bank, looking at um, MRIs from, from individuals who donated their brain and had an MRI during life, and then they died and had a neuropathological evaluation. And we're trying to see what are the patterns of shrinkage in the brain among people with autopsy-confirmed CTE. Fluid biomarkers, looking at, you can now, through a, a lot of advances in immunoassay technology, we can now quantify um, these proteins in the blood. Uh, we've always we've been do, able to do this for a while for lumbar puncture and CSF analysis, but we can now perhaps do it in the blood. We've looked at this in in, um, in former NFL players, and this is a group of 96 former National Football League players, 25 people, same age men without a history of repetitive head impact or TBI. We looked at their blood for total tau levels. We calculated an index to estimate their cumulative exposure to repetitive head impacts. Uh, <clears throat> um, this is just a quick table kind of going over the, who the sample was found a really uh, interesting relationship the more repetitive head impacts the greater levels of plasma total tau in the former NFL players now there were no group differences but you see here in this figure there was a set uh, or a group of people of former NFL players who had quite high plasma total tau levels um, and so CTE is this Huge public health priority given the amount of people that uh, are exposed to repetitive head impacts, a large proportion of our society. We need to be able to detect and diagnose this disease in life in order to open doors to treatment and prevention trials. We need to better understand risk factors. We need to better understand its clinical presentations. And those are things we're doing. We need to address also the limitations in our, in our, in, in our current studies. So a lot of our Studies on the clinical presentation are based on retrospective reports from family members of brain donors. A lot of the current studies are based on male former elite football players. What about the other contact sports, soccer, ice hockey? What about, what about women? What, um, we need larger, more diverse samples. We need longer follow-ups, prospective studies. That's something we're doing at the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Dr. Mez and myself oversee the clinical core. We're recruiting all types of contact sport athletes, men, women. They, they undergo very comprehensive assessments. 
they do this every year. Uh, we're going to have a great group of people to compare them to, other Alzheimer's disease, other types of disease groups. We have this also new U54 initiative. Um, this is an initiative where Dr. McKee is the PI, myself, Dr. Mez, and Dr. Steen are project leads. This is combining uh, several brain banks um, in order to better pathologically study CTE and other diseases associated with repetitive head impacts, better characterize the clinical presentation and conduct clinical pathological correlation studies. So on that note, um, I want to thank everyone at the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease and CT Center. We have a fantastic team. Uh, I couldn't imagine working with another team. Um, I want to thank the Cushion Legacy Foundation, Lisa McHale, Chris Nowinski, the CLF team. They play an instrumental role in our outreach and recruitment efforts. Um, I want to thank the funders, National Institutes of Health, National Institute on Aging, NINDS. And really, most important, I want to thank all of the participants who participate in our research. This is something that we cannot do without them. I hope you um, learned a little bit more about CTE and the risk for repetitive head impacts today. And if you have any questions and my email was on one of these slides, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, thank you for tuning in um, and have a great rest of, of a great rest of your summer. No, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you have seen here. If you find this to be of value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we'll hope to see you next time!